0: Good morning, Wellspring family. It's great to be with you. And I've got my trusty technical director here, Pat, who says we're all good to go. And so great to have you here on Zoom. We are actually starting a new series this week called Why Wellspring? And we're kind of transitioning from last week's message that Pastor Cheryl brought us into on where do we go from here and where do we go from here? Well, the, where, the place that we go is to talk about why we do what we do. And in our series, we'll be starting off with kind of a big picture, meta-level, cosmic even. And then eventually, over the next few weeks, it'll get more uh, specific as to why Wellspring in particular. But today, we're looking at Why Church? That's the, the title of today's message. So our series is... Why Wellspring? And the message today is why church? The title is just two words, why church? And even though it's a two word question, you could ask it in a variety of ways. For example, let's say someone's telling you that they're watching a football game today. Are you gonna join them? Are you watching it? You let them know you're at church instead. And so your friend is a little bit curious and they ask, hmm, why church? You know, given the available options of what you could be doing today, why church? Uh, Another way it could be asked would be if you are reading some news and you come across a story about what feels like yet another example of Christians embarrassing themselves or a church who has gotten itself into hot water because it's covering up something or Not telling the truth about where the money was going. And you could ask this question Why, church? Why, church? Why is there another scandal like this that makes Christians look bad? Why, church? Or another way you could be asking it is if you are in your prayer time journaling or asking God, you know, what do we do with this huge gap that just feels like a massive difference between how the world is and how God wants it to be. And, you know, this difference between the problems of the world and how little sometimes it feels like God is doing about these major problems. And you might be asking God, of all the miracles that you could do, Lord, of all the power that you have, of all the methods that you have to get the world back on track, all the solutions that you could provide, why church? Why church? Out of all that that you could do, God, is that really your plan? So why church? And why church? And why church? So to answer that, we're going to be talking about a lot of whys, but it'll actually break down into three parts. And it's going to break down into a why, a what, and a how why, what, and how. And so first we're gonna look at why does the church matter? Then we're gonna look at what makes the church unique? And finally, we're gonna look at how can the church still be good news for the world? Why, what, and how? And notice there that the church is spelled with a capital C And I do that to indicate that we're talking about more than just our local congregation of Wellspring or even our denomination, the Evangelical Church. Um, We're talking about the body of Christ in general. We're looking really big picture, like I said today. So this this question of why the church matters is really about all churches. Why, Why does any church matter? And that's why there's a big C there. So to stick, to take a step back from that, before we even ask why the church matters, um, I think it's important to look at what one of my heroes has to say about why our beliefs matter. Why does it matter what we even think about the church or about how God works or about what we're even doing here? Isn't it enough just to talk about our local congregation and how it's going at Wellspring and our relationships here? Why do we even? you know, go out to this huge level of belief. And so before we get to that question of why does the church matter, this is what one of my heroes, Brenda Salter McNeil, has to say about belief. She says, what we believe about God tells us what we believe about people. And what we believe about people tells us what kind of communities, and societies we believe we should strive to create. And so it really matters what we believe about God, how God works, because it impacts people. It impacts how we treat people and what type of groups, communities, societies that we will have. Because if we believe that God is rigid, God is stingy, then that's gonna affect the type of communities that we create. If we believe that God is pretty much whatever we want God to be, and God will never tell us something that we don't wanna hear, then that's also going to affect how we interact with people. If God is, is distant and set the world up and now is not really that involved anymore now that the world is on its course, then that's gonna affect how we interact with people. So that's why what we believe about church, the big C church, matters. And on a personal level, you could be asking, well, what about for me if the church has not been doing much for me lately? You know, what if I can find purpose or belonging or meaning somewhere else? Why does the church have to be on my radar screen given all the things that maybe I've experienced, uh, negative experiences in a church, for example. And that's going to bring us to our first point in our outline for why does the church matter. And the first part is God's mission has a church. Notice I didn't say God's church has a mission. It's intentionally switched to say God's mission has a a church, And there's a few other blanks on that point that we'll get to in case you're wondering how come not all the blanks are filled in yet. We will get there. This is just the first two blanks. God's mission has a church. Uh, one of the great theologians of the past hundred years is Jürgen Moltmann from Germany who says this. It's not the church that has a mission of salvation to fulfill in the world. It's the mission of the Son and the Spirit through the Father that includes the Church, so on the big scale of things, the church is relatively recent it 's not nearly as old as the Trinity, right? There was community from the beginning of Father, Son, and Spirit, and the Father sends the Son on mission, and the, and the Son sends the Spirit, and the Spirit starts the church and so we 're part of this thing that god 's been doing for a long time it 's not that we have this mission as a church, and it starts with us it starts with God and God's mission. God has already been on a journey of reaching people, reaching the world. And he's done that through his son. He's done that through spirit. And now he's doing that through the church because God's mission has a church. The word mission um, is is actually pretty hard to find in an English translation of the Bible. Um, It comes from a Latin translation of the word for sending, you see a lot more about sending in the Bible. An apostle is one who's sent, or a missionary is someone who is sent. And so whenever you talk about mission, it has to do with with sending. And in this verse, we see Jesus saying, Peace be with you. This is John 20, 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So Jesus has been sent, and now he is sending us. That's what mission is about. And whenever there's any activity in the New Testament to do with mission, there's some kind of sending that's happening. And it starts with Jesus being sent. Then it's the spirit being sent. And then it's the church being sent. The church does not send as much as we are sent by God to be part of this mission. Another theologian from Switzerland Emil Bruner, who was around in the 30s, 40s, um, and 50s, he died in the 60s, but he has a well-known quote that says, the church exists by mission just as a fire exists by burning. Where there's no mission, there's no church. And so, what Bruner is saying is that, you know, without mission, we are not who we are meant to be, who we are made to be. Because the church is part of God's mission. And he even goes further and says, where there's no church and no mission, there's no faith. What Brunner is saying is that just as you can't have a fire without burning, you can't have a church that's not joining what God is doing in the world, God's mission. Because remember, it's not so much about the church having a mission as much as it's about God's mission having a church. So, the second part of your outline, if you've been wondering, what about those other blanks? This is still under why, the, why does a church matter? Let's go there. And we see first that God's mission has a church. And second, we see that the church is God's remedy for isolated, immature, and individualistic ways of being. I worked really hard to make sure they all started with I there. I guess I could have said uh, emotionally unhealthy ways of being, but that doesn't start with I. So I went with isolated, immature, and uh, individualistic ways of being. That's where things kind of tend toward if we're in a society like the United States that has a generally Western orientation where things are about the individual. And if things kind of take their course, it can lead to a lot of isolation, immaturity, and super individualistic thinking where it's really just about you and what you want individually. And one of the things about societies like ours You know, it's not that individualistic societies are worse than collective societies. Both have their issues. You just have to know what the pros and cons are, right? But in a society that's individualistic, then our natural default is to just see ourselves as an individual with personality traits, individual attributes. We look at ourselves in terms of what have I personally achieved in my life There's a focus on fulfilling your potential as a person. There's a focus on making independent choices with as much personal freedom as possible. And if this sounds kind of normal, it is. It goes without saying because we're in that type of society. It doesn't make you a bad person. We just have to be aware of this environment that we're swimming in and this pull towards isolation, towards immaturity and individualistic thinking that says, I don't need anyone but myself. And maybe if I'm a Christian, then I'll just add Jesus, you know, so it'll just be me and Jesus, and then we're good. That's individualism. Well, what about other people? What about a community of folks that might say something that you don't like? Is it really just about finding something as a consumer for what your personal tastes are? It's not just about me and Jesus because that's where the church can make a difference because in the church we're no longer isolated when we connect we're no longer able to quite get away with as much of our immaturity because people are there to hold us accountable and we're not just thinking about what's good for us we're thinking about what's good for others the church helps us to break out of these patterns that will pull us away. And so that's kind of a practical way that church matters. It's not that there aren't other ways to be free of isolation or immaturity or individualistic thinking, but what we see in scripture is that God does this through the church. It's God's remedy. So our first reflection question, just going back to this question of mission, and church. You can talk about this in your small groups this week or reflect on it. What differences do you notice between God's church has a mission and God's mission has a church? What do you what do you notice about that? Does it feel the same or is there something different when we say God's church has a mission versus God's mission has a church? Are you more comfortable being in a position of sending, you know, like a church that sends out missionaries? Or are you willing to be uh, someone who is sent, thinking of yourself as someone who is sent by the Holy Spirit as part of what God is doing? Are you more comfortable sending or being sent? And I know this, this sermon has a lot of quotes. It's got a lot of um, different theological ideas because this is one of kind of my, my favorite topics to think about, is the church, what it is, why it exists, ways to do it better, ways it's gone wrong. And I know it can be a little bit um, of a bombardment like water from a fire hose. So I want to make sure that we had some time in the sermon to relax and take a breath. And it's important uh, to think about what helps us uh, as a remedy for life's problems. And so for me, um, in addition to church, which starts with C, there's another word that starts with C as a remedy for my problems. And this is the remedy right here, cats. Well, one particular cat, Squeaky the cat. We have had Squeaky for a month and a half, maybe two months, and she has changed our lives. In a certain sense, she has helped us with our isolation and immaturity because we, have to get along, actually, we don't have to get along. We actually do get along when we're around Squeaky. Our family is so different. We I think had a lot more friction before Squeaky came to our house, and over the past month and a half, it's just been amazing. So now that we have established that cats are right up there with with church and God's plan, um I'd love to see what some of your thoughts are, uh, especially if they start with the letter C. Things that make life better for you. Maybe it's coffee or chocolate. Um, you can you can put it in the chat. It has to start with C though. Um, maybe comic books. What's something that is life giving for you? Something that makes life better. Maybe it's not as big and cosmic as the church, but it could still start start with C and. Um, I'm gonna use my little skills here to see if I can see the chat. Oh yes, candy. Cogs, children, connecting. Yes, community. There are so many good things that start with C. Caring for others. Yes, any other cat people out there? We didn't know we were cat people until about two months ago. So this is all like a revelation to us. Who knows what the next year will bring. Of how of how God will help us to be our our best selves. Okay, cookies. Yes, absolutely. There's there's so many different things. Well, I won't be able to keep checking in on the chat, but feel free to share other ideas of what helps you. But now that we have looked at uh, why church matters, we're going to go to what. From why to what, and what. Makes the church unique. What's so special about the church? You know, you can sing songs and hear teaching other places. You can have snacks and friends in other places. You know, what's so great about church? Is it really that unique? Uh, Diana Butler Bass is a historian and preacher, and she says this. She says, institutions come and go. But the body of Christ, it existed as the word from the beginning. It exists now in a diversity of forms and will continue to exist even if human beings and their words and their world go extinct. Like, that's a, that's a deep thought. You know, what does it mean that it's always existed from the beginning? Well, think about it, right? Body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ, but we are not the first body of Christ. There actually is the second member of the Trinity, Jesus, who was there at the beginning. That's what she's talking about. The body of Christ existed as the Word, and then it became flesh, and then sent the Spirit, and then birthed the church, and now we have all these different ways of doing church in who knows how many languages and cultures. And Despite how many churches there are in the world, what she's saying is even if that were to go extinct, there is still a body of Christ, and we get to be part of that. And so one of the, one of the things that can help us think about what makes the church unique is in your outline here, and this is another, another concept from a different theologian. And that is, this is the one to fill in the blanks if you have your notes. The church is a sign, instrument, and foretaste of God's kingdom. This is part of what makes the church unique. That we are a sign, an instrument, and a foretaste of God's kingdom. Pastor Dan, why did you choose those three words? That doesn't make that much sense to me. Don't worry, I did not choose those three words. (laughs) This other guy did. Let's blame him. Leslie Newbegin. He's a well-known missiologist who uh, has passed away now, but he's been really influential in the idea of churches um, being in line with God's mission and God's mission having a church. And so when he talks about a sign, he's referring to something that points beyond itself. And he was really big on um, the notion that churches are not just to point to themselves but we point beyond ourselves, we point to Jesus. We point to the author and finisher of this whole faith thing. It's about turning the attention toward what God is already doing and the church just joins that. That's, that's how we're assigned. To be an instrument means that we're joining God's work. Um, you might think of music when you think of instruments um, I actually think of dentistry because my dad was a dentist and he used instruments of dentistry to do his work. And in a similar way, God uses us to do his work. And sometimes there's friction. Sometimes it gets messy, just like dental instruments. It can be uncomfortable. But that's how God does his work often. It's okay if there's friction when it's because God is working and changing and renewing us so that we can be part of what the Trinity is doing. And so we're joining that melody, we're joining that work of God calling forth peace, calling forth healing, calling forth salvation, calling forth beauty. We are God's instruments. And finally, the foretaste, what's that about? Well, foretaste means that you're getting a preview of something. It means that you're getting a sneak peek in advance experience of what's going to come. It's all about experience, experience of something that is starting now, but is going to get better. And so God's kingdom has started, but it's not fully in its, I guess, fullness. And so the church is about inviting people into that experience of God at work. Let me go back to that word instrument, though. And I think my slides are messed up here. We'll just do a repeat there. This text from Second Peter, see if you can find the word in there, the word instrument. This is from the message translation because I think it helps us uh, get a better handle on what we're talking about. It says, you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work. He's talking about the church. Chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work, to speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you, from nothing to something, from accepted to rejected. There's a lot of responsibility there in being an instrument of God's kingdom, holy and speaking out for God, telling the world of the difference God has made. And yet the message doesn't start with us. So the pressure isn't all on us because we're just joining something that God has been doing from the beginning. We're just giving a foretaste. We're just a sign that's pointing ahead to something even better, even though we can already taste it and we can already see God working through this instrument of his work. Okay. There are still more quotes to come. But let's pause for a minute again and just think about what is it that you see God doing where you could be part of what, of what God is doing. It might be messy. It might be uncomfortable. Um, there's one more concept in this point that I think is important before we get to the reflection question. And that comes from a theologian who goes way back to the third century from North Africa, St. Cyprian of Carthage, and he was from an area that is now the country of Tunisia in Northern Africa. He was one of the first bishops, um, and he said famously, his most famous quote is, no one can have God for their father who does not have the church for their mother. Nobody can have God for their father who doesn't have the church for their mother. And let me explain the context of why he was saying this. Because at that time, there was a big controversy, as there is in most periods of history. There's always some kind of controversy. Well, the controversy back in uh, St. Cyprian's day was not vaccines. It was, what do we do with the status of people who have renounced their faith during this 11-year persecution period that was super violent. So people renounced their faith in order just to save their necks. It was either die or renounce their faith. So the people that weren't martyred and were still alive after the violence ended 11 years later, what do we do with these people who have renounced their faith and yet still want to be back in the church? You know, maybe they made sacrifices to Roman gods to save their lives. Maybe they had denied Christ. And that's a serious thing. And And people were divided about what to do with the status of these people. And the sticking point was whether the church should allow these traitors to re-enter the community. Because on one side you had folks who were saying, this was such a betrayal. This is such... Um, an abdication of responsibility that it's blasphemy that you cannot forgive somebody for renouncing the community and renouncing Christ. And then on the other side, you had other folks who said, actually, there is a way to be forgiven of this if you pay some restitution and are really committed to the way of Christ. And St. Cyprian was part of that camp. He was one of the folks who took the more forgiving approach and said that you could be re-admitted. And as a bishop, he had the authority to set the policy in place, that there was a process for people to rejoin the church after they had abandoned it. But when Cyprian put this policy in place, there was a backlash from folks who thought the church had compromised its identity. And so the backlash led to people leaving the church, splitting away, starting their own systems of church. And there was division happening. And as this is happening, Cyprian is saying, wait, let's stay together. There can only be one true church because we're all the body of Christ. He made the case, instead of splitting off, he said, remain with the church who is like your mother. He even says, there are many rays of sun, but one light. There are many branches of a tree, but one strength from its mighty root. And he uses all these different metaphors. And then he, he describes the church as a mother of many children. And he says, we are born from her womb. We are nourished by her milk. We are given life by her spirit. And that's the context for what would become his most famous line, Nobody can have God for their father who does not have the church for their mother. So, in our individualistic society, if that's our default mode, depending on where you're from, it can be weird to think of the church as your mother if you're just taught, believe in God, have faith, and it's just you and God, and there's just there's just two of you. So you kind of have one parent, and that parent's God, and the church is kind of there, like, if you really need support or, you know, if it helps you in your faith to become a better Christian, then, you know, the church can help you with that. But Cyprian is saying, no, you have two parents in your spiritual life. You have a mother, you have a father, you have God, and you have the church. But something happens when we stop recognizing the church as our mother, and we treat the church like... It's something that exists for us to satisfy our desires or um, our preferences. And we think it's just me and Jesus without the church. And let me just add one more thing to clarify this because I want to make sure that this is um, understood about this metaphor of the church being our mother and God being our father. Because like all metaphors, it has a part that holds true and a part where it kind of breaks down because that's not the point of the metaphor. So the point of the metaphor is talking about the relationships between parents and children. You know, parents um, are the ones who produce children. You cannot produce children if you don't have parents, right? But what it's not saying is something about wives and husbands, And some folks have tried to use this idea as a justification for um, an unequal relationship between wives and husbands, because if God is like the husband and the church is like the wife, then there's this hierarchy. And we can start to justify things like telling the wives to submit to the husbands, but the husbands don't have to mutually submit to their wives, which it says in Scripture to mutually submit. And so what Cyprian is saying is just as children are biologically produced by a mother and father, in a similar way, the followers of Jesus are spiritually produced by a mother church and a father God. You need both. So the the metaphor works when you're talking about parents producing children, but the metaphor does not work if you try to make it say that wives should submit to husbands because husbands are somehow closer to God. Um, which the Bible doesn't teach, or closer to God's authority, which you know real life experience doesn't teach that, and the Bible doesn't ex- doesn't teach that. Um, Ephesians five says, "Be subject to one another, mutually, out of reverence for Christ." Submission is supposed to be mutual, it's supposed to go both ways between women and men in a healthy partnership of equals. We know that men are not closer to God's, you know goodness than women. That's not my experience at all, and it's not what Scripture says either. Um, God, on the other hand, in relationship to the church, is much more loving, much more faithful, much more holy, much much more praiseworthy than the church. Um, Much more. For example, think of our denomination. Um, We're a local church, Wellspring, that's part of this other larger group called the Evangelical Covenant Church, who I love. I love the ECC. And there's some really good things about the ECC. And I'm really glad that Wellspring belongs to it. But as much as I like it, it's not on the same level as God. It's not even close. Uh, God is way above the ECC. The ECC submits to God. God does not submit to the ECC. It's the other way around. And the reason why I'm I'm spelling this out so didactically is just to make sure that it's clear, because there's been so much damage that's been done with this idea that men should be in charge of women because God is in charge of the church. That's not what the metaphor means. The metaphor means that you are produced by your parents, so honor them. It doesn't mean that men are like God and women are like the church. That's not how it works. Okay, so, diatribe over, and we will go to our second reflection question. What do you think of all this? This would be a great uh, discussion question for your groups or even journaling. What's your reaction to this idea of the church as your mother? Is that new to you? What do you think of it? And if you think about your spiritual life, how has the church nurtured you or shaped you into who you are today? Okay, so we've got two out of three. Let's bring it home with our final uh, question. We did the why, we did the what, and now we're going to go to the how. How can the church still be good news to the world? How can the church still be good news? For the past three or four years, uh, some of you know that I've been working on this book project that's taken way too much of my time, and I complain about it a lot. Sorry, God. But in this project, I've been writing about the struggle with how do we make sense of what the church has done, good, bad, and ugly, because they're all very real. And you can't just pick one and say it's all bad or you can't just pick one and say it's all good because especially when it comes to the American version, the evangelical version that we have, that Wellspring is part of, by the way, there is a vast range of what people experience because when it's good, it can be really good. But when it's bad, it can be really bad. And how do we make sense of that? And can the church still be good news? And so what I've been processing and writing and praying and talking and discussing and reading about is how do we think about this in a way that doesn't minimize any of those very true realities, the truth that it can be very, very good, the truth that it can be really, really bad and really ugly. How do we make sense of that mixed bag where the church is beautiful and yet broken? Because the beautiful part, you know, we don't struggle with that. When the church is going well, when we love our church, when our church loves us, um, when we're growing and finding out new things about God that we never knew before, when we're digging into um, amazing teaching and scripture, it's, it's great. There's nothing like it. What makes us struggle is the broken part, the part that is not going as planned. And yet, even though there's that broken part, it doesn't negate the beautiful part. And even though there's that beautiful part, it doesn't negate the broken part. And in the book, I quote a well known pastor who once said this about the church. He said, It's the most frustrating institution in the whole world. And yet, when it's running on all cylinders, there is nothing like the church. It's the most frustrating institution in the world. But when it's running well, on all cylinders, there is nothing like the church. And when you think about it, what else is like church? You know, there's other types of organizations, institutions, and let's think about those for a second. You know, the church—it's not a business, although it does have a, a financial component, a budget component. Uh, the church is not strictly a nonprofit, although it does help people who are in need. It's—it's it's more than a nonprofit, though. Uh, The church is not exactly a school, but it does facilitate teaching and learning. Uh, The church is not exactly a mental health clinic, but it does offer encouragement for weary souls. Uh, The church is not a political action committee, um, and yet we care about issues of public justice and what the scriptures teach about the widow, the orphan, the prisoner, the immigrant, we care about how the vulnerable are treated, but we're not a we're not a political action committee, we're not partisan, at least not supposed to be. What a strange thing, this institution, this organiza- organization, this organism, whatever it is, this this church thing. It's it's not like anything else. It has elements, but it really is unique, especially when you go back to what we saw earlier from Diana Butler Bass. This thing has been going on since the beginning, the body of Christ. And then if you think, this is the other thing that that fascinates me, when you think historically about all the ups and downs that Christianity has gone through, all the scandals, all the victories, all the losses, all the amazing insights, all the different translations to different cultures and people groups, um, is there really another group that meets every week around the globe, all year round, in just about every country on earth, and has a 2,000-year history of adaptation and survival, is there anything quite like that? There isn't. There's something special about the church, and I think that's why when it goes wrong, it really messes things up, because of how special it is, how much of God's heart is in this thing that he started. Through the Son, through the Spirit, and through the early church we read about. And so, to answer this question in your notes, number three, how can the church still be good news for the world? The church is at its best when we embody God's heart and hope for all creation. We don't always do that. We're not the best at that all the time. But when we do, That's when we're good news. That's when we're at our best. To embody is to put it into action, to live it out. And it's not just God's heart for some people, but it's God's heart for all creation. Everything that God made that God wants to redeem. That's when we're at our best. And I love this quote from another hero of mine. Rachel Held Evans, who was 37 when she passed away a couple years ago, and she said, the gospel doesn't need a coalition devoted to keeping the wrong people out. It needs a family of sinners saved by grace, committed to tearing down the walls, throwing open the doors, and shouting, welcome, there's bread and wine. Come, eat with us and talk. This isn't a kingdom for the worthy. It's a kingdom for the hungry. That's what this is about. It's it's about welcoming the prodigals, welcoming everyone who wants to join what God is doing, to eat and talk. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. Although we also see some other interesting things in the book of Acts that aren't so good. But the good part is, when the church is at its best, we see this, Acts 2.42. All those things that Rachel describes. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. And wouldn't it be amazing if this is what we were about? Learning together, being together, eating together, not always, you know, just doing stuff that involves words, but just being together and chewing food that tastes good and serving, and cleaning up, and doing it again, and praying together. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. That's what God is all about when we're at our best. So reflect on this this week. Think about a time when the church hasn't been God's good news to the world, but has made a mess of things? And this is our final reflection question. Think about that. Maybe it's something you've experienced personally, or it could just be something that's secondhand or that you've read about. But think about that when we have not been at our best and we've made a mess. Who cleans up the mess? And where do you feel drawn to join with the ones who are cleaning up the mess, even if it means starting small. You know, if an oil tanker dumps fuel into the ocean, you can't just clean up the ocean in a second. You have to go little by little and each day leave it slightly better than you found it. It's going to be hard to just go back in time as if this oil spill didn't happen, but that doesn't mean you just let it be. You are part of the cleanup process if you care about that ocean, or if you're part of that area that was affected. And the same way with church, what are the areas that have been affected? Where can we leave things just a little bit better than we found it? Not triumphantly fix everything with a prayer or in a day, but by starting small. So hopefully today we've seen just a, just a glimpse of why the church matters, what is unique about the church, and how we can still be good news. To the world. Amen? Amen. I know that was a lot. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have not given up on us and that you care about the church more than we do and that you desire for your heart and your hope to reach all creation, Lord. Show us the small steps where we can be part of that. Show us how we can be part of your unique body of Christ in a big picture way as well as a local way here at Wellspring as we continue our series on why Wellspring. Help us to be part of that, Lord. And if you're, you're watching this and this is new to you and you've never really thought of yourself as being part of a faith community or part of the body of Christ, then this is a time where you can join. This is a time where you can say something really simple to God, expressing your desire to join the body of Christ. Jesus, I want to be part of the body of Christ. I recognize that you have died on the cross and risen from the dead to show that you are the true Savior and Lord of the world. I confess my need for you, and I desire to be part of this amazing thing that you're doing. The church that doesn't always go well, and yet you have never given up on. Lord, we lift up these prayers to you, and we thank you for all that you are doing in and through us. Lord, forgive us for the times we have not been with your heart and your hope. Help us to have grace for ourselves, even as we are accountable and responsible for those areas that you have entrusted to us. We lift up these things to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.